0: This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to leave diet culture behind and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com course. That's christyharrison.com course. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, and body liberation. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, offering online courses and programs to help people all over the world make peace with food. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. I, 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 I remember I was teaving, little gums bleeding. Friday evening, it was all about eating. When I became a teen, it was all about beefing. Now I'm ready for the world. Try and sink my teeth in. Stacking extra. Hey there, welcome to episode 140 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Jesse Haggerty, a fellow anti diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, as well as a personal trainer. We talked about how to make the transition from instrumental exercise into joyful movement, why it's so important to have a trauma informed approach to movement, ableism in the fitness world, and the shape-shifting nature of diet culture, and so much more. I can't wait to share our conversation with you in just a few minutes, but first I'll answer this week's listener question which is from a listener named abby who writes hi christy i'm a huge fan of the podcast and i want to thank you for your persistent work at dismantling diet culture it has been four years since i admitted myself to a program for binge eating disorder i now embrace non-diet wellness and have grown increasingly more loving towards my body However, there's a part of my body that I have always felt self-conscious about, and no matter how much I learn to love the other parts, I can't seem to bring myself to feel comfortable about this body part. It seems like I'll never get to a place where I'm comfortable with it. I've even considered cosmetic surgery to alter that part of my body. I know it sounds crazy, but there's a part of me that wonders if cosmetic surgery might be a healthier option because I think that dieting might be worse for my mental and physical health than having surgery. I understand the many risks involved in surgery, but I can't help but feel like it'd be worth it to never have to hate that part of my body again i'm an actor and obviously there's an unhealthy spotlight on physical appearance in my field and i'm struggling with the decision to change myself in order to improve my career and self-confidence do you have any advice on how to love a body part that feels unlovable or even to get to a place of neutrality towards it thanks in advance for your answer so thanks abby for that great question before i answer just my usual disclaimer that these answers are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice So, yeah, this is a great question, and it's something that I think a lot of people consider because of the body shame that we often experience because of these tremendous pressures and beauty expectations that are put on us in our society, right, by diet culture. So before I offer some concrete strategies to explore, I want to empathize with you and to share that I actually felt this exact same way when I gave up dieting myself. So for about a year or two after throwing out my scale and giving up counting calories and stuff, I fantasized about having surgery to fix, quote unquote, particular body parts that I had tried to alter through weight loss. And I spent hours of my life researching different surgeries and trying to figure out how I would save up the money for them. So I totally get it. I really empathize with what you're going through. And I want to say today, I'm so glad I never went through with it. And I can see that this was just another leg of my body acceptance journey that I had to go through after dieting. And now I'm actually completely fine with the body parts that I had been so eager to change. So I wanted to share that from personal experience. It does get better and that you're not alone in having those thoughts. It's really understandable that we'd be pushed into thinking this way because we live in a culture that makes it so difficult to live in certain kinds of bodies, right? And so I say that I had all these fantasies about surgery as someone with thin privilege because there are particular parts of my body that I felt were wrong, quote unquote, by social standards. But of course, for people in larger bodies and people with less than privilege, and thin privilege is a spectrum, right? So the, the less thin privilege you have, the harder it can be to really navigate living in a particular kind of body in this society. And it's really inevitable that within diet culture, so many people are going to feel pressure to change their bodies in order to escape oppression. And I want to say that I don't blame people for succumbing to this pressure, you know, even though I don't agree that changing your body is ever necessary or that it's even going to stop the oppression, that it's guaranteed to stop the oppression, right? It's not. But individuals aren't the ones at fault if they get sucked into this system. And it's really the system itself that is fucked up and that needs changing, right? So I believe in body autonomy, which means that whatever choice you make for your body is your choice to make. And we all are just doing the best we can to survive in this world, you know, and sometimes those options can seem good to us. And that's what's foisted upon us, right, again and again in diet culture. So I'd encourage you to listen to my episode with Jess Baker, episode 112, as well as the last two episodes, episode 138 with Sarah Harry and 139 with Lisa Dubriel, for more on body autonomy and having self-compassion when you encounter the desire to change your body. So, all that being said, there are real risks with surgery, as I know you mentioned, you know, right? Whether it's plastic surgery or weight loss surgery, there are definite risks. There's a risk of infection and death anytime you go under anesthesia or have your body cut open. And unless surgery is a true medical necessity, it's not a risk I'd recommend taking. But not only are these surgeries dangerous, but they often don't fix our body image either, right? So they're not accomplishing what they set out to accomplish. Lisa and I talked about this in her episode. And I think something that she said that's so important to remember whenever we're considering body manipulation through any means is, quote, weight loss doesn't heal people from their internalized weight stigma. So Lisa Dubril really had it right there, because I think this sentiment holds true for any type of body changes. Altering our bodies does not remove body shame. And we've seen that in the research. People have seen that in their lived experience. You know, it doesn't just magically fix everything, even though it holds out the promise that it will and diet culture really emphasizes that promise. I also want to talk about this comparison you've made between cosmetic surgery and dieting and sort of unpack that because it seems like you've come to a place where you know dieting isn't helpful for your physical and mental health and that is huge, right? It's a big step to get there. But I wouldn't say that cosmetic surgery is better, quote unquote, for your physical or mental health because the same dissatisfaction about our bodies that drives the pursuit of weight loss and dieting is likely what's driving your desire to change your body surgically. And that dissatisfaction, again, probably won't dissipate with the surgery. It's not shown to change with body manipulation. And in fact, many people who do end up going through a surgery to alter their body size and shape end up feeling worse about themselves because they realize the things that they thought they would get through the body change don't actually happen. Because we're sold this promise of a perfect life, right? If we look a certain way. And unfortunately, that's an empty promise. Like having the quote unquote right body doesn't fix everything, even if it seems like it's going to help us have this magical transformation. It's not always that rosy. So I would suggest some other options instead, and they're very similar to the suggestions I would give to anyone trying to overcome their internalized fat phobia and accept their bodies. So it's all about exposure and like exposing yourself to different body types and sizes and shapes and colors, because studies show that when we see something more often, we're more likely to accept it and to find it attractive. So that means we can condition ourselves to appreciate various body types rather than just the current young, thin, white, (laughs) able-bodied, cisgender. standard beauty ideal. So a great way to practice this exposure is with social media, specifically through Instagram. So Jess Baker and Meredith Noble both have some great guides for who to follow on Instagram. And I'll link to those in the show notes for this episode, which you can find at christyharrison.com 140. And I also would suggest some reading materials and really immersing yourself in the philosophy of body acceptance and getting deeper because it sounds like you've been on this journey for several years and that's great. You know, you've really done a lot of work to give up dieting, give up the pursuit of weight loss, but there's more to be done on your body acceptance journey, right? Accepting those parts of yourself that you're considering changing through surgery. So I would suggest checking out The Body is Not an Apology, which is an online publication run by one of my previous guests, Sonia Renee Taylor, who was on episode 113. And The Body is Not an Apology focuses on body liberation. Their writers cover things like weight, ability, gender, race, and all of this other stuff, Right. so just the intersection of all the ways that bodies can show up in the world and how we deal with that. I would also recommend Everyday Feminism. That's another great website that explores these topics through the lens of intersectional feminism. And The Beauty Myth by Naomi Wolf is also a great book that really gets into beauty expectations and helps break down the structural violence behind them and the oppression that is contained within specifically female ideals of beauty. But I think increasingly that's applying to people of all genders as well. That book was written back in the 90s. so And just a trigger warning for that book, though, because I'm always quoting it and I love it, but I try to remember to say there are calorie counts and other numbers in that book. So for those of you who are sensitive to numbers, I would avoid that one. And I would also wonder, for Abby asking the question, if you can use self-compassion to help carry you through this tough place, right? Like, can you cultivate more gratitude for the things that you do like about your body and have compassion for the things that you don't like and try to find respect and gratitude for the things that your body allows you to do that have nothing to do with how you look? Right. So ask yourself if it's possible and do try to do like a daily practice of appreciating and accepting your body or maybe just even tolerating it, learning to tolerate it and take the good with the bad as it is right now. But I think cultivating that gratitude is really important for helping put the focus back on things that are not external, things that your body gives you and allows you. And even if you have a lot of disabilities, even if you don't have a lot of things that your body can do, your body still allows you to be here to be in the world, right? To be a person with emotions and connections and to be alive and experiencing this life, right? So that is fundamentally what our bodies all give us, like our breath, our heartbeat, our blood pumping, you know, our brains functioning to the extent that whatever way that they function, right? Like, That is a gift. And trying to have gratitude for those gifts, those very, very basic gifts of just existing, I think can help take the focus and the onus off of how particular body parts look and whether or not they measure up, quote unquote, to these impossible standards that that have been set out for us by our society. And the other thing is, you know, you mentioned you're an actor and I know that can put even more pressure on you to adhere to this unrealistic beauty ideal. But just recognizing that that ideal is so unattainable for the vast majority of the population, like 95 to 99 percent of people are never going to look like. I mean, really, I would say 100 percent of people can never look like this ideal that's been held up for us because it's digitally manipulated beyond all recognition. Right. And even people whose bodies sort of fit the ideal in some ways still feel you know, like their bodies are wrong because they have these quote unquote flaws that are outside of the supposed ideal. And really, they're not flaws at all, right? Like the further you get from the beauty ideal, the more systemic oppression people face, which is very true and very real. But pretty much everyone, even if they don't face systemic oppression, is still facing internalized stigma about how their bodies don't measure up to this supposed ideal. So knowing that you're not alone, that this is something that a lot of us struggle with, and that it really is unrealistic and it really is a political problem, right? The reason that we have these unattainable ideals to begin with is that it keeps us buying stuff. Right. It keeps us feeling bad about our bodies so that we want to buy products to fix them, quote unquote. And it keeps us from engaging in our true political power, our true social power, our true power to change the world when we're so focused on the surface level stuff that we're not really devoting our full energy to the ways in which we could be changing the world. So I think just keeping your mind on that, focusing on that is helpful and also focusing on your strengths, right? Like as an actor, think about the things that make you a great actor as well as your strengths in other areas of life that can help relieve some of the pressure about this one body part that you're really struggling with thinking about all the other aspects of your life that are good, that are valuable, things that you bring to the table. And I will say I've done various forms of acting and performing throughout my life. And my husband is an actor as well, like professionally. So I know how demoralizing it can be not to get cast in things and not to have a show be well received. And like there's so much rejection in this profession. So it's really, really hard. And I think you have to do a lot of continual work to bolster your self-image, your self-esteem, and be resilient to all that rejection. And it's, it's tough. But I heard this quote in an improv class years ago that really helped me kind of navigate some of that stuff and transform how I thought about my strengths as a performer, which the quote was, vulnerability is your superpower vulnerability is your superpower and it really lifted me up when I was down and reminded me of why I was drawn to performing in the first place and helped remind me of some of the strengths that I brought to the table that I was overlooking and it was actually one of the sparks that inspired me to launch this podcast because I realized that this thing that I had long considered a weakness my history of struggling in my relationship with food and my body was actually a unique perspective that I could bring to the world so maybe think about the ways in which your vulnerability is your superpower. And ways that you can harness your unique strengths to bring you joy and to bring you satisfaction and fulfillment in your career that have nothing to do with changing your body. I think this is a golden age for people doing their own thing performance-wise because so many amazing TV shows and movies and web series and all these different things and podcasts have come about from people just deciding, well, you know what? I'm sick of trying to get hired by someone else and I'm just going to make my own thing and make it happen for myself. And there's some struggle in that, of course, and there's privilege in that, of course, too, of having the privilege to like the time to put into something like that when you're not necessarily getting paid at first, right? But to the extent that that's available to you, I would consider that as a way of Taking you out of that position where someone else has the power to give you a role or to determine your fate and your career, giving yourself ways of taking matters into your own hands and doing your own thing and doing something that really lights you up. And then that really takes the focus off your body and that has nothing to do with this particular body part. You can pursue your strengths and put out into the world what you want to put out into the world make some art that you feel truly great about and that is your life's purpose right and what you what you've devoted yourself to so yeah i would say look at all of those things the strengths that you have they're outside of your body that have nothing to do with your body and finding ways to harness those and feel good about yourself and feel like you're really having purpose in the world and taking the focus off of that body part because i promise you you have every right to accept that body part And I really believe you can get there in time if you give yourself patience and time and support to you know keep working through the body acceptance journey. And lastly, something else that might be helpful is finding community, You know, finding people who can support you on that journey to accepting your body as it is right now in its entirety without having to change or alter particular parts, right? So you might even be able to find that community with other actors, like talking about these pressures and these issues with people in your community, in your profession, because they probably would understand these specific pressures to alter your body. And I think there's a growing community of actors who are more into body acceptance and kind of like over it with the unrealistic beauty standards. So yeah, I hope that was helpful. It's a bunch of different ideas, but again, what you do with your body is your right, but I would really encourage you to dig deep and find ways of feeling good about yourself that don't involve changing your body and be kind to yourself because you deserve that. If you want to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, go to christyharrison.com questions. That's christyharrison.com questions. And then if you want a whole library of answers from me to help you master intuitive eating and body acceptance, plus the chance to ask me any question you want, you can join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. You'll not only get an exclusive monthly Q&A podcast with answers to all of your specific questions about intuitive eating and 13 modules of content to help you master the principles of intuitive eating and put them into practice but you'll also be a part of a private community to connect with several hundred incredible people who are fellow course participants who are supporting each other on this intuitive eating journey. And that community is really, really beautiful and valuable. And many of my past participants have said that that is their favorite aspect of the course is this community and this ability to connect with people and get support for their journey. Plus I'm in that community answering questions and providing guidance along with my wonderful staff. So you'll really get a huge amount of community support, and individual attention in this course. If you're ready to become an intuitive eater and leave diet culture behind once and for all, you can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. And now without any further ado, let's go talk to Jesse Haggerty. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up.
1: Yeah, I love this question and I loved hearing all of your guests' answers to this question. My relationship to food growing up, I feel like when I look back on it, was very dichotomous, which is interesting because I feel like that's what I work on with a lot of my clients now. And on one hand, I was a child of the 90s (laughs) and my parents were like always on a diet and every adult I knew was always on a diet. Our house was just like filled with In hindsight, I feel like it was all diet foods. Like, I don't remember there being a lot of real foods on a day-to-day basis. It's a lot of frozen, like, lean cuisine meals and Weight Watchers meals and snacks and stuff like that. And... On the other hand, though, I grew up on Long Island in New York. I come from like a pretty traditional like New York Italian family, and so food was always like a very central part of our celebration. So we always did like a big Sunday dinner. And as we kind of became more embedded in that tradition, the food got a little bit more extravagant. So we would start doing like homemade pasta and like really big, fun, home-cooked meals. And then every holiday was always infused with a lot of different foods and home-cooked foods and stuff like that. So I feel like on one hand, I had a really good relationship with food and it was something that we really celebrated. But on the other hand, I was very much influenced by diet culture and I feel like it hit me at a much younger age than some of my friends for some reason. I don't know if I was just more influenced by it or I was like more sensitive to it, but I just remember caring more about dieting and weight loss at a younger age than my peers.
0: Hmm. What age did that start for you? You know, it's really hard to
1: say, but I would say like probably I went through puberty really young, like much younger than people. So I think maybe at that point I was maybe 10 or 11. And that was when I started thinking about it. And then around the same time I switched schools, I moved to a different town. And I think part of that maybe played into it because I was worried about making new friends and I was always extremely like painfully shy. And so I felt real pressure for people to like me other than me having to get my personality out there, because it was like so painful for me. So I felt I think that maybe part of that influenced it. And it wasn't anything extreme. It wasn't like I was extremely restricting or anything like that. But I was just paying attention to it more. And I think I started experimenting with with dieting probably around that time, like 11, 12 years old. Yeah.
0: Mm, Yeah, that makes sense. If you're in a new school and sort of feeling out of place and then your body's changing and it's like a new place. Also, you're not really at home in your body when it's changing. And that's happening earlier than other kids. I can imagine that's a perfect storm to make you feel like, all right, got to get this under control.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I remember introducing dieting to some of my friends and I'm like in hindsight I'm like I feel so bad about that like I probably gave them a lifelong complex you know but it's it's just something that you absorb and you don't like I didn't question it I never questioned if it was right or if it was healthy I just anything that I read or heard I just assumed was truth and I took it and ran with it
0: Yeah, that's how little kids' brains work too, right? Like any authority figure that says something, at some point you start to question it. But I think if you read something in a book or a magazine or hear something from parents, usually little kids are like, okay, so that's the way it is. Yeah. And yeah, if it wasn't you introducing your friends to dieting, it probably would have been someone else or just diet culture in general, because it's like, it gets all of us at some point.
1: That's true. That makes me feel a lot better.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And it was, it's not your fault. Like you were also a product of this culture too, right? Definitely. Yeah. So diet culture started to get its claws in you sooner than some people, but, but it sounds like it was really prevalent in your home too. So I wonder how much that influenced things.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I remember my parents were always like in and out of weight watchers or trying different Like the zone diet, I think that was like one of the first ones that I ever tried, which is like... The worst. It's all the worst. But I remember going to meetings with them when I was really little because I would have otherwise been home alone. So it wasn't like a meeting for me, but I would go to Weight Watchers meetings with my parents. And if someone had reported weight loss, everyone would like cheer and clap. And so it was just like, even if I wasn't part of it, it was just all the messaging I was getting. And I once I was in high school and could kind of drive myself around places, that's when I really started to kind of try to take matters into my own hands. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to try Weight Watchers and I'm going to go to the gym a lot and I'm going to try to drink smoothies or whatever. I mean, I was just kind of always experimenting with stuff. And I think it was mainly because I just I saw my parents struggling and I wanted to like find some answers. I think that's why I obviously why I got into nutrition. I think that's why a lot of us get into that was, I felt like I was hearing all of these conflicting messages and I was like, there has to be some truth out there. I have to be able to find some answers.
0: Mm-hmm, totally. That's, that's a big part of what led me down that road too. Yeah. And I think, yeah, for most of us, I think it's a really important thing for dietitians and nutritionists to acknowledge and personal trainers and therapists to some extent and stuff too, but like health professionals in general, and especially those who deal with food and body stuff, I think it's helpful to hear other professionals acknowledge, yeah, I got into this for personal reasons because this was on my mind because I was, you know, sort of obsessed with finding the answers and recognizing that our profession in general has a lot of people who struggle and that that's okay. Like that, that brought us here is okay. That doesn't mean something shameful about us, but we do have another way now we can do something differently now.
1: Yes. Yeah, totally. I know. And I feel like in hindsight, I look back and just think about how much shame is wrapped up in all of that and how everyone everyone is struggling with this considering like the culture that we live in. Right. And there was really nothing. I mean, it took me forever. It feels like most of my career, when I look back on things to really figure out that it's not us, that's the problem, right? We're not the ones that are controlling our own destiny. I mean, maybe to an extent, but I think that you know, when we put so much shame on people for the way that they eat or the way that they move, it's like, no wonder (laughs) we're unhappy and not feeling the best about our bodies.
0: Totally. Well, it's that like neoliberal personal responsibility idea, right? That gets instilled in us from such a young age by diet culture. It's like, you're not eating right and moving right or exercising enough or whatever. Right. And so like, we get told that it's all within our control, that it's all in our hands. And that if we're not losing weight, or we're not at a weight that society deems to be acceptable, or the weight that we want to be, even if we have thin privilege, you know, if we want to be a certain weight, and we're not losing weight, it's our fault. And so I think, yeah, seeing it a different way and starting to see the systemic pressures on people to lose weight and change their bodies and how futile that is, takes a real awakening, you know, takes a lot of time, I think, for most people.
1: Yeah. And I think that for me too, I grew up under this like very perfectionistic mindset and my parents and, you know, my mom in particular had kind of really instilled this idea that You have to take responsibility for your actions and, like, you're kind of in charge of what happens to you in your own life. And obviously, like, to an extent, that is true. But it wasn't even just around food, but, you know, around school and around getting into college and around getting good grades and getting a good job. I mean, all of that, I felt like if I had put the blame on someone else, then I was making excuses, right, for anything and it's been like the biggest blessing to realize like, no, there are some characteristics pretty innate within me that make things like making new friends, like being really introverted and really sensitive. Like, that's really hard for me. <laughs> like, I can only control that to an extent when when put in a situation like that. And it's like the same exact thing for food and for exercise. It's like, how much control do we really want to have over these things before they start negatively impacting
0: our lives, Right. And before they start controlling us, before it's like right <laughs> that takes over our lives. And then what is really the point of that, right? Because the lie that we're sold is like, if you have the perfect body or if you're eating perfectly, then your life is all going to fall into place. And like, that's a lie and that's impossible. But also, the more we try for that, the more we strive for that unattainable ideal, the more the life that we desire actually slips out of our grasp. Mm. Hmm.
1: Yeah, it's such a vicious cycle.
0: Yeah, completely. Yeah, so I'm curious, you know, in your experience, like in high school, when you started to really go for it with dieting and try to figure out, learn everything you could about nutrition and stuff, how did that affect your life? What did that do to your social life and your identity?
1: It's weird because at the time, high school and then especially going into college, I became a personal trainer when I was in my senior year of high school. So I was young and I still think it's insane that anyone actually let me train them. Like (laughs) I was like a child, but they did. And I, you know, I worked in a gym, like a pretty big box gym and was surrounded by other trainers who had their own relationships with food and their body. And then when I got to college, again, I was kind of put in a situation where I was very fortunate that I was, I went to college with my best friend from high school. We were roommates. I had like my safety net there, but I was obviously meeting a lot of new people. And at the time I felt like dieting and that compulsion around it gave me that sense of safety and it gave me something to talk about with people. It gave me a way to relate to other people. At the time, I would have never said it was like taking something away from my life. But as time went on and I started to meet people who I felt like a deeper connection with beyond dieting and beyond talk about our bodies, that's when I started to realize that it had taken something away from me. And it was that, you know, I was making a lot of connections with a lot of people, but they were really surface level and they never really went beyond that. And it made me feel really sad and disconnected and like depressed my first couple of years of school. I, I didn't like being in college. Like, I feel like everyone always talks about college as like the best
0: time of your life. And Ugh, so what no. are people talking about? <laughs> I hate
1: this, you know?
0: I hated mine too. I mean, there were moments that, that were great, but for the most part, it was really tough. Yeah. I w- was not psyched about college. <laughs> No. Ugh. Yeah, no, that's, I think, such a great point, though, that dieting giveth and dieting taketh away, you know, it's yeah. like it gives you something at first, right, that way of connecting with people on this surface level that, like I said before, to me, when I first discovered that, when I was first in my dieting days and the early days of slipping into an eating disorder, I was suddenly connecting with people in this way that I had never had before, you know, and I was talking to them about these things that were like, what's your secret or like, you look amazing what did you do to achieve this? And suddenly I had this sort of authority, but also a way in with people to like... Get into something that was somewhat personal and maybe sort of a bridge to a deeper connection, Mm -hmm. which, as a sensitive person and an introvert and someone who's been somewhat shy as well, like it was hard for me to find that way in with people. I would do it in, you know, when I was thrown together with someone like who was my roommate or on my floor in college or something, I would have these friendships form because we had close proximity and a lot of time to get to know each other. But like, beyond that you know just meeting someone in class or meeting someone at a party it was like hard for me to feel connected and diet talk suddenly gave me that at least with women because everybody wanted to know and was really curious and excited to talk to me and so it first felt like it was giving me a lot. And then over time, it was that same feeling of having these very superficial connections or being sort of taken over by the diet talk and not having much left to go deeper with people. And so that was where it finally started to take away. But I think it it does give you a lot at first, you know, it seems to yeah. give a lot. It's tricky like that.
1: Yeah, very sneaky and very seductive. And it's funny because I feel like now I – almost have like the opposite reaction to it because I am still a dietitian and that comes up a lot when you meet new people like what do you do for work and you know I inevitably get questions about what should I be eating and how much should I be exercising and I'm like oh this is so not what I want to be talking about right now
0: <laughs> totally it's so boring it's like not and and it's so complicated right because with <laughs> yeah. what we do the type of dietetics and you know nutrition and for you personal training that you do I'm sure is like, you don't want to get into diet talk and the typical like, oh, well, I've lost this much weight and blah, blah, blah. You know, (laughs) I'm like, how do I lose more? How do I stick to this diet? That's not what we do. And so explaining it and getting into the deeper philosophy, like, well, actually diets don't work and here are the statistics and here's health at every size. Let me introduce this new concept that'll blow your mind. Like that's kind of hard to do in just a casual conversation at a party or like when you're talking to someone at a store or whatever, like it's not really gonna probably going to work. And so you're left feeling, right. I mean, for me, I'm left feeling often kind of like, Ugh, like, what do I do with this? You know?
1: I know it's so true. And you have to kind of assess, like, is it worth it to get into this conversation right now? Or do I just talk about something else superficial? Yeah. <laughs> so
0: change the subject and move on. I know. Yeah. yeah. Or plant seeds for someone, you know, I'm a big fan of that, but I feel like it's that's tricky too. just being like, well, I don't really believe in that. I'm moving on, you know, <laughs> like, right, 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 right. Yeah. Oh, it's tough. But yeah. So I mean, that is so fascinating that you're a personal trainer at like, <laughs> 17, 18, right? Yeah. Like, that's mind blowing. And that must have really shaped your relationship with exercise, movement, physical activity, right? I'm sure that contributed to a diet mindset around that stuff because I feel like the typical gym experience and the typical personal trainer experience is very wedded to diet culture.
1: Yes, definitely. I felt like my reasoning for getting into training was somewhat superficial, like focused on a negative body image and focusing on weight loss or weight management. But I also grew up dancing and I really loved dancing, like for the sake of it. I never had any intention of being a professional dancer. I just always really liked doing it. It was like a really fun way for me to move. I was not athletic at all. Like (laughs) I tried to play like softball and basketball and my parents would come and watch me and just laugh because they were like, you're just so bad at this, (laughs) which was fine. I was like doing it because I wanted to hang out with my friends. And I was like, all right, this, I'm just not a team player. Like I need to do something for myself. So I I was interested in human movement and... I liked using exercise as a way to like increase my own internal body awareness, but it was in a gym setting and at 17, 18 years old, when you're like about to go to college, it's really hard to like separate the two. I didn't have the awareness of like, oh, I don't want to use this for, for weight loss or change the way my (laughs) arms look. Like I couldn't put those pieces together. And so my relationship with it was definitely more more around manipulating my body, I guess, over time. And then when I went to college, I was, I minored in dance. So I was still dancing a lot. And I still felt like on top of that, I still had to get all of my perfect workouts in or whatever, which eventually gets exhausting. Like nobody wants to do that
0: much stuff. No, completely. Like when you're doing a lot else I'm sure in college you also had to study and like have friends and all of that stuff right so yeah and it's it just gets in the way of life to have to be working out so much
1: yes definitely it was excessive for a while and then at some point I think it was my junior year I when I got to college I was working at like the school gym I was training there and I was teaching a bunch of exercise classes there I, like in hindsight, I look back, I'm like, I was there like all day, every day. I was like teaching or like studying and then teaching some more and then taking dance classes and training people. And I realized it was like a little bit exhausting. And because it was like the school gym, I wasn't, I wasn't making like a ton of money there. They still pay you like you're, you know, serving coffee and stuff like that. Right. And so I looked for a job, an outside training studio, and I literally just stumbled upon this small personal training studio in Brookline, Massachusetts, and it was run by one woman who was a physical therapist and also a personal trainer, and she had one other trainer working under her, and I went in for an interview. We kind of hit it off, and a couple months later, I started working there, and it was kind of like a back-end way to start introducing me to the work I do now as a trainer because She was a physical therapist, so she worked a lot of people who were like recovering from injuries and it was very much about injury prevention and injury recovery. And of course, everyone still wanted to lose weight and like wanted to tone up and all of those, you know, catchy words that you always hear, but it was just not focused on that because everyone's main priority was like not having pain anymore. And it just taught me a totally different way to look at exercise and to look at movement.
0: Yeah, I bet that was really eye-opening. Yes, definitely.
1: And also, I mean, the woman who worked, I worked there with her name was Colleen and her and I are still very close. And I, to me, like she had a very normal relationship with exercise (laughs) and a very normal relationship with food and her body, at least from my perspective. I don't know what was going on, you know, with her at the time, but So it allowed me to kind of ease up on that stuff without feeling like I was a bad trainer, you know, for not exercising excessively.
0: Right. Because in other settings, I'm sure that's like a keeping up with the Joneses thing. Like everybody's doing it and you're sort of this bad trainer for not doing it. It's hard to stop. But if that's the person who's your supervisor and like modeling that for you, that's very healing and sort of gives you permission to just ease up a little bit.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Mm, That's really lovely. And that's interesting too, the idea of physical therapy, personal training for injury prevention and recovery. Like to me, that's the one, my own relationship with exercise was very excessive for a long time too. And in my recovery from disordered eating, like the eating sort of fell into place first when I discovered intuitive eating, but the joyful movement and intuitive movement part was the longer work. And I think it is for a lot of people. Yeah, And even like my first season of the podcast in 2013, you hear me talk about some of the strategies I'm trying to use to like heal my relationship with exercise and let go of it being such an instrumental thing. And for me, I I really came to a place of feeling like I will never join a gym again. I got rid of like any sort of gym related equipment that I had. I just, you know, I do yoga, I walk, I do spontaneous random activities when it's happening. You know, it's like friends are throwing a Frisbee in the park okay I'll do that or whatever you know swimming in the ocean in the summertime but I don't do like structured movement anymore and I don't do gym stuff anymore and that's for me something that's been very healing and having to sort of give myself permission to do that and get permission to do that from this community that I've become a part of health at every size was extremely healing for my relationship with movement but like I think that there's personal training for injury prevention or physical therapy, I think is one case in which like that can be super healing and helpful for your body and sort of figuring out how to like take care of your body through movement. And that's a very different experience. You know, self-care through movement is a very different experience than we're taught to have in diet culture.
1: Yes, definitely. It's hard, I think, to like again, separate those messages, right? Because the instinct as someone who is selling this product right as a trainer is to be like this will help your knees feel better and you'll like tone up in the process mm-hmm. like I, I played that card for a while Like <laughs> I was like I can do both for you <laughs> when I was like why do I have to tag this on to like everything <laughs> I'm talking about
0: right but that's what the marketing people encourage you to do right that's what the sort of culture of marketing any sort of fitness business is about it's like tack on these sort of physique goals, quote unquote, that people have. And that's the idea or the myth is that it'll sell more. Right. Right. And what have you found to be the case with that in terms of branding and marketing and creating a business as a personal trainer, transitioning out of doing that, transitioning out of straddling that line? How has that affected your business and how how would you sort of recommend that other personal trainers go about this?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I tried to get rid of it for a while. At first I was like, I just, maybe I'll just not train people anymore. It doesn't make sense. I mean, for everything you were just talking about, right? Like, why am I teaching people how to do this like structured movement when they can just start doing things that they really enjoy and they don't need to work with me one-on-one for that, those reasons. And I was still training people like as I was having all of these thoughts and I started to kind of help a lot of my clients just shift their focus during exercise. And so, I mean, if you look at the way I train people, it looks the same as you would probably see in like a gym-like setting. I I don't work in a gym, but when I'm training people, the exercises we're doing are not like super weird or different. (laughs) They're like pretty much standard, you know, old school exercises. But what I'm always encouraging people to do is to change the intention behind the exercise or behind the movement that we're doing. And for a lot of my clients who do have trouble with body image, a lot of it is just being able to feel more comfortable in their body in a really uncomfortable situation, which could be like a plank pose where they're like holding a lot of tension where they don't need to be holding a lot of tension. And it's about like, how can you relax in this situation? And how can you kind of calm down a little bit in the situation. So not everything feels like it has to be done right now. Like we have so much tension around exercise, I feel like, because we're like, I must hold this for X amount of minutes so I can tone my abs or whatever, <laughs> where I'm like, it doesn't have to be about that. And in terms of marketing, I, I think that... Marcy Evans, who is another eating disorder dietitian, has helped me a lot with that. And a lot of, I mean, I'm right now as a trainer marketing most of my services to people who are struggling with an eating disorder or in recovery from an eating disorder. And then through that, I tend to get a lot of people who just want to add more movement into their lives but they don't want to go to a trainer who's going to be so focused on weight loss or physical changes in the body.
0: Mhm. I mean that's interesting the idea of training for people with eating disorders, right? Because I know you you've written a little bit about like, you know, this sort of line between if you have an eating disorder Are you able to exercise? Are you able to engage in movement? And then when you're in recovery or have recovered from an eating disorder and want to go into movement, that's kind of a different thing, right? So, what would you say to people who are in the process of recovering from an eating disorder or maybe even still active in an eating disorder and haven't even really gotten any professional help yet for recovery? What would be some questions for people to ask themselves about whether or not they're ready to engage in movement?
1: Yes, I know. This is like a hard line. To toe, right? Because I think that when we are in the throes of an eating disorder, whether we know it or not, our judgment is not clear, right? On what is an appropriate amount of movement, because things can get really distorted, right? About what we actually need versus like what changes we actually want to see in our bodies. And I mean, the truth is like, we don't need as much exercise as we really think that we do. I think
0: that
1: there's such a emphasis on high intensity exercise and getting so many hours of exercise in every week. And I just, I'm always like, we don't need to do that much. And it doesn't have to all be structured. I think, I think structure is helpful, for some people. And if, if it's something that you actually enjoy doing and you're not like avoiding it or feeling like you have to do it right. Otherwise the exercise gods will shun you then sure, go ahead, have fun. But I think that a lot of times exercise can be used in so many different ways. I mean, one thing that I always hear people say is, exercise is like my therapy, you know, oh, <laughs> it's like God. a thing that actually drives me crazy because Same. I'm like, no, we need to go to therapy. Like <laughs> right. exercise is fine. Like it can make <laughs> you feel good, but it's like, are we exercising? Cause it feels good. In addition to working out our problems in a real therapeutic session, or are we doing it? Cause it like suppresses, the problems that we have for a short period of time.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's a really great point. It can't be a substitute for therapy. Mental health is its own thing and exercise can support mental health for sure, but it's not a substitute for adequate mental health care in whatever form that looks like. Right.
1: So I think a good question for people to always ask is, why am I doing this right now? And really then practicing honesty and being really honest with yourself. And I'll be honest, when I started asking myself that question, like the amount of exercise I was doing decreased significantly. Same. Because I was like, I either one, I don't really have a good reason or two, like I couldn't think of a reason that wasn't related to manipulating my body in some way. And that's hard. It's like really hard to do that when like so much of your identity is wrapped up in how much you exercise.
0: Totally, Especially, I'm sure for you as a personal trainer, right? That must have been an interesting identity shift that you had to grapple with.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I still have friends who are like, oh, you know, you work out all the time. I'm like, actually, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I don't at all. <laughs> and it's just, I... Yeah, it's it's a weird thing to to say like, "Oh yeah, I'm a personal trainer, but I don't go to the gym."
0: <laughs> right. Well, I feel that way with nutrition too. I'm like, "I'm a dietitian, but I don't actually care that much about nutrition, you know? Like it's not about that. It's about so much more." And yeah, so I feel you on that so much. And actually that was when I was kind of working out the last bits of my relationship with movement, I was asking myself that question every time. And I I made a vow to myself that every time I had the impulse to exercise in a structured way, I would ask myself, like, what's the primary motivation for this? Is it because I really want to go to this yoga class because I've had a hard week and it would just feel really good to stretch my body and it feels tight. Okay, great. That's a motivation I can get behind. Is it because I think that I haven't exercised enough this week and something bad's gonna happen to my body if I don't or my body's gonna change and and get bigger and that's a problem. And if any of those motivations are primary there, then I'm shutting it down. I'm not letting myself go, you know, for self-care. And that was a really tough To put into practice, but it really worked. It really helped, you know. And over time, as I continued to ask myself that question every time, I noticed that, like, I was moving less, I was doing a lot less structured activity, but also I was moving in ways that made me feel good and that weren't even that structured. Like I would realize, oh, I'm getting up and stretching for a few minutes just because it feels good or I'm taking a walk to meet a friend and like, it's not even something I had to think about. It's just, I'll just walk there because it feels good, you know? And so it sort of evened itself out over time. I think I was able to find a relationship with movement that was much, the intention was much more about things that were actually nourishing and self-caring, but it it took a lot of work to get there.
1: Yeah. I think it allows you and you can kind of decrease those external motivators to be more in touch with what will actually benefit your body in that moment. I mean, I'm and I've always it's funny now because I think back, I've always been like this. Like I've always been <laughs> the type of person. I mean, my my dad's a real estate agent. And when I was younger, when I wasn't in school, I would like go around and like show houses with him. And I would always make him pack my tap shoes because I would want to tap on all the hardwood floors. <laughs> we didn't have hardwood floors in like the house that we lived in. <laughs> and I was like, I, we, I got a tap dance. <laughs> and it's funny because I'm like, I've always been like that where I'm like, I just got to do this thing right now. I got to move my body in this way. And it feels very like spontaneous. And there's not... any structure to it you know but it's just something that like is fun and something that you want to do and and it's hard, it's hard as like an adult, obviously, when if you're like at work and in your office, you can't just like get up and tap tap dance. (laughs) Yeah, but, but you can kind of say, you know what, I was planning on going for a run today. And I don't really feel like doing that. So maybe I'll just go home and like stretch or go for a walk or something that's like a little bit more up to my speed right now.
0: Yeah, totally. Right. Like the flexibility to not have to follow through on the plan Mm -hmm. is so important. And so hard when you're living in diet culture, or living with an eating disorder that's telling you, like, you have to do this. We were talking a little bit offline earlier about the idea of, like, letting something go and quitting, you know, and how that's given such a bad rap in our society and that so many of us are taught, don't quit. Don't ever quit anything you start. But, like, sometimes the self-care thing to do is to say, like, you know what? I'm just not enjoying this. I'm just not feeling this. And I'm not going to do it. And that's actually the right choice for me. That's actually good. Right.
1: Yeah. And it's something I
0: think you can
1: start to practice with what you're already doing. I mean, a lot of times with my clients who are safe, <laughs> if they are already going to a class, like a spin class or something like that, I'm like, can you practice just being present and like responding to what your body needs every second of that class, right? So if your knee starts bothering you, like, can you back off a little bit, even if the teacher is telling you to like turn up the resistance or can you kind of like do the opposite <laughs> of what the person is instructing you to do? And obviously I think yoga allows for that a lot more than other classes, right? Like if you go to a spin class, a lot of times they're kind of in your face about keeping up and going faster and like turning up the resistance, but you have autonomy over what you're doing in that class. And I've never seen an instructor like kick someone out, hopefully (laughs) for reasons like that. So I think being able to, you know, practice in settings that you're already comfortable in, if kind of like uprooting everything you're already doing isn't an option for you right now.
0: Yeah, that's a really great point that the yoga. That's what I always say to about yoga, because people sometimes will say to me like, oh, I hate yoga so much. Like, is there anything else I can do other than yoga to practice joyful movement and embodiment? And I'm like, Yeah, there are definitely. But I think yoga gives you those skills. Like it gives you certain skills that you can take with you into other settings. But you can also practice those skills in other settings, right? Like learning to say no and set boundaries and care for yourself, even when the teacher, you know, because yoga, the nice thing about it is usually in good yoga classes that are trauma informed and the teacher really gets it. They'll be like, hey, if anything's ever too much for you, take a child's pose, do what you need to do, take care of your body. You know, there's usually some explicit reinforcement of that at the beginning of the class or throughout the class and that's not usually the case in other types of exercise classes No, but if you can sort of give that to yourself give yourself the own your own permission to do that I mean that's like a real trial by fire almost if you've got the spin class teacher yelling at you to turn up the resistance and you're like I'm just gonna turn mine down <laughs> you know like this calm inner voice that's like nope not doing that and practicing setting that boundary, which is tough, but I think it's it can be done. Yes.
1: Yeah, it is really hard. I mean, it, with everything, I know I teach exercise classes still, and I was talking about this today. So many people come to the class still wearing like a Fitbit or something, or I'm like, just throw them away. We don't need to wear them anymore. And it's not only ineffective, like I don't think it's really doing any good for us, but it then takes you out of the experience of Being in your body, which is like the whole point to me of moving, anyways, is like reintroducing yourself to your body and like having some time with it because we don't really get that. And they'll just, I mean, like every two seconds throughout class, like tapping the Fitbit to be like, what's my heart rate? How many calories have I burned? And I'm like, it's the same as it was two seconds ago. Like it hasn't changed all that much.
0: Right. Yeah. And it really does take you out of your body and into your head, right? And into this, like, instrumental way of like measuring what you're doing instead of just being there in the moment and being present with how your body feels because like that's what I mean I know when I've done a lot of movement or when my body's needing it or something by tuning in to how my body feels it's not about like how many steps did I walk today or whatever like that just does not serve me yes I Uh, know It's uh, it's funny. uh, I'm curious. I want to talk a little more about this concept of safety that you brought up. If someone is safe to engage in movement, right? And I think it's probably really worth saying here that some people aren't safe to engage in movement, like medically speaking, you know, someone with an eating disorder in the throes of an eating disorder where they're medically compromised, it's really not safe to move. And probably the best thing for someone is to stop movement altogether while they heal their eating disorder. Yes. And so that's, I think, something very much worth saying to anyone listening who's in that place. But the idea of safety as like this kind of spectrum, right? There's You can sort of be like in a safe enough place to engage in movement, but then there's the emotional safety of particular forms of movement and people with trauma who have either trauma that has nothing to do with movement at all or trauma that is somewhat related to movement and diet culture and their recovery from it or they you know they're trying to recover from it now but they've been through a lot of trauma with regard to their relationship with their body and with food I think prioritizing your safety in those senses is also really important prioritizing your emotional safety with movement So I'm curious to know your thoughts on trauma-informed care and creating a sense of safety in a movement practice, whatever that looks like.
1: Yeah, that's such a good question. I feel like it's, again, like it is a hard line to toe because I think that most... Treatment centers and a lot of even outpatient therapists and dietitians err on the side of caution, which I think is great, where they're like, let's just cut out movement altogether. And there's not much of a conversation about how movement plays into the eating disorder or how movement plays into their body image. And it's more just like, let's take the safety precaution and just take movement off the table. And I think at first, like at the beginning stages of recovery, it's better to be safe. I wouldn't advocate really DIYing that if you're working with someone, but but I do think that the pros and cons of movement through eating disorder recovery and trauma recovery are kind of the same. On one hand, it is a really great way to gently expose yourself to your own body and practice being in your body and practicing embodied movement, and then on the other hand, It does all of those things, which can be very scary and cannot feel that great if you don't have a great relationship with your body. And negative thoughts about your own body are really what's feeding into your eating disorder or disordered eating behaviors. And so doing that on your own can be a slippery slope (laughs) again, also depending on where you're doing it, because 99% of the places where you can practice movement or exercise or, you know, whatever you want to call it are, can be somewhat triggering depending on the instructor and depending on what the instructor is wearing and depending on what the instructor's body looks like and what marketing materials are out and what language they're using. I mean, there's so many things that can trigger just like Anybody, but especially someone who has a history of an eating disorder.
0: Totally. Yeah, that's really important to be aware of. That's, I think, great advice to like really try to. Curate your environment with movement, right? And and find an environment that doesn't feel triggering because there are lots of options for that. You don't have to go to the teacher whose body triggers you or the teacher whose language triggers you or the gym with all these posters about clean eating everywhere or whatever, you know, you can find an environment that suits your recovery better.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, something I have some clients now who I I just see for nutrition therapy, but they have a couple of other places they like going for like group exercise classes. And a lot of the stuff that we work on is like, can you do as much of the class as you can with your eyes closed if there, there are mirrors present? Or if it's like an area where you can actually turn away from the mirror, or can you find a studio that doesn't have mirrors? Because there's been a lot of research to show that like that makes a huge difference in how you're feeling. And for some reason now, like every studio has mirrors all over oh. the place. I'm like, why do we need
0: these? Seriously. I know. And like, yeah, people make the argument about alignment, right? That you can like see your alignment or something in the mirror. But I feel like it's actually a better experience and better for sort of building the skills too. If people can learn, you know, if the instructor can like say it in language and the person can feel it in their body, and then maybe the instructor comes around and like adjusts, you know, that's what I love about yoga too, is that if they say, okay, put your hand at a... 90 degree angle or whatever, you know, and it's like your hand is further out than that. You can probably feel that or see that and notice that, you know, and right. bring it back up. Right. Or they can come around and adjust and help you asking permission, of course, hopefully before they like touch you. But right. That is sort of a better experience, I think, for really learning the posture, really learning whatever it is you're going to learn, even dance. You know, I think that like Mm -hmm. there's something to be said for even dance classes, not having mirrors and just allowing you to be in your body and feel what the movement feels like and learn what the alignment is that's going to support you.
1: Yeah. I remember being in dance class in high school and there was a cue that my teacher had said to me like every single day And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. This doesn't make any sense. And I finally understood what she meant. One day clicked with like a certain exercise we were doing. And it had absolutely nothing to do with the mirror. Like I did not get it by looking in the mirror. Like that did not help. But they always also would turn us if we were preparing for like a performance would turn us around so then we couldn't use the mirror so that we'd practice like all year in front of this mirror and then turn around and not have it anymore and everyone like it was like everyone was dancing for the first time like nobody knew which way they were supposed to go and like no and it's like amazing how like out of your body you can feel when you're used to that like external feedback and it takes a lot of practice to like get back in when you take that stuff away.
0: Totally. That's really interesting. You like become dependent on the mirror and then you're not, your body doesn't really know the motions without that external validation or something.
1: Yeah. It's strange. I haven't thought about that in a while.
0: (laughs) Yeah. That's really funny. I definitely, I took dance classes in high school too. and, And there was always a mirror present and it was a little weird like doing it. And we didn't really we didn't really turn away or something before performances. I don't think that was like a skill that we were encouraged to build. So we kind of just winged it, you know, in performances. But I remember feeling really awkward on stage too, because it was like, where's this crutch? You know, how's my, how's my alignment? I don't know. I'm just gonna, just gonna go for it. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. I want to talk a little bit too, because we are talking about styles of movement that are For the most part, I think designed for people with able bodies. And I think people with various disabilities can participate in a lot of different styles of movement. But, you know, I'm just, I want to like take some space to talk about ableism in the fitness world and the exercise world, you know, and how to work with different abilities in personal training or in movement, how people with different abilities can do their own work on joyful movement that doesn't sort of trigger this sense of exclusion.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's like the magic word, right? I think so much of personal training and exercise culture, workout culture, I mean, really excludes such a large percentage, like the majority of the population, whether it be through just the types of classes or through their marketing materials. I mean, if you see like any marketing materials for like any exercise studio, they're only featuring able bodied people and then usually very thin people, women in particular. And it can be really intimidating and, and also I'm always like, why why? Why is this the way that everyone has chosen to adopt? Like I think that because There's been like such a rise, obviously, in like gyms and workout studios over the past few decades. Everyone's always kind of just like copied the previous model without really questioning like why we do it that way. Like, why do we put mirrors up in every studio? And why are we only using like thin white women on our marketing materials? And like, have we ever considered that we're not catering to people in larger bodies or considering that we're not catering to people in... Disabled bodies. I mean, it's, I think that those questions like just haven't come up a lot, which is sad and frustrating. And I know that, you know, when I started training, I think my hesitance to address that, I mean, it was not something I had thought of consciously. It was maybe like in the back of my mind, but I felt like in order to make everyone comfortable, like I had to treat everyone the same. And I realized like how much of a disservice I've done to former clients of mine by thinking that way, right? Just being like, everyone can move their body the same way. And I don't have to acknowledge it if they can't, like, I'm just going to treat everyone the same and do the same exercises for everyone. And again, there's no avenue to teach people otherwise. I mean, when you learn to be a personal trainer or group exercise instructor, like you're learning how to train and and teach able-bodied people who like have no limitations.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting even, you know, thinking about like the diversity of abilities for particular movement within even people who, are in able bodies, there's a lot that I can't do. Like I'm not flexible, you know? And so (laughs) I do yoga as one of my primary forms of movement and I love it, but I am not flexible. So I'm never going to be like, quote unquote, great at yoga, you know? Cause it's just, it's just not how my body was designed to move. And I think some teachers really get that and are just like, open to having everybody have their own experience and not pushing people. And some teachers that I fell into classes with early in my yoga practice, when I was still also in a disordered relationship with food and my body, really exacerbated my sense of shame around like what my body couldn't do, you know, like Ashtanga classes or um, Iyengar classes, where it's like the focus is on this like particular alignment. And if your body doesn't do that, or... Ashtanga, I think it was Ashtanga, I had a couple of teachers who were like, I wanted to do a particular pose because it seemed like it would feel good. And that was the pose they were cueing. But then they came to me and said, oh, no, 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 you can't do that pose. Like, that's not for you because you can't do X, Y and Z with your body. So you need to do this other thing instead. And like this mm-hmm. super shaming horrible experience you know and I mean that's I'm someone with thin privilege able-bodied privilege like white privilege all of that stuff right but I was still just felt like such an outsider in that class and so much shame and it really gave me a lot of empathy for like how people in all diverse types of bodies feel when they're excluded from particular types of activities whether it's because of disabilities because of being in a larger body and the classes don't give cues or modifications that are appropriate for larger bodies like you know, where the the instructors just don't get it and don't make room for diversity. And they're like, nope, it has to be this one way. And if you can't do it, you're (laughs) wrong, you know? Yeah. It's the worst.
1: It is. And I think that the other thing too, I mean, this is something that I've, I've been so much more conscious of and I'm not perfect by any stretch, but it's like, Even when I am teaching a class and I am offering modifications to offer them as like an equal option and to not offer them as like, well, if you can't do this, then you can do this. Instead, it's like, here, you have two options. You can do this or this. This will be easier on your joints. This will be whatever. But it doesn't have to be like, you're bad if you choose (laughs) this option.
0: Right. This is the lesser option or something. Right. Now that's really important. Like giving, giving options for people in differently abled bodies, you know, whatever that looks like, I think is so important. Yeah, And you do movement therapy too with clients, right? So that's more of an individual practice. And I'm sure that there's much more ability to like be totally flexible and modify things based on the person's unique abilities and everything like that.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, the one-on-one stuff is really where it's at in terms of being able to help people of all different abilities and all different bodies and like everyone on different days. Like that's another huge thing that comes up where I'm like, just because we did this the other day doesn't mean we have to do it today. Like you can choose the modification today. And that is just as fine as like choosing this other option that you did the other day. It's like not better or worse. We're always going to feel different
0: <laughs> totally I was just thinking about that before we spoke because I did a little bit of yoga before jumping on the podcast which is something I like to do to like feel more centered and you know open up my voice and things like that but but I was out of practice I hadn't been on the mat in a little while and so I was just like oh gosh this is hard the stuff that I'm used to doing and and feeling okay with like if I was doing a video that I do consistently. And I was like, wow, this is very different than the last time I did that. And being able to be like, that's what it is today. That, of course, it feels like that today. You know, I've I've been kind of neglecting my self-care recently. And so it's going to feel hard to get back into it.
1: Yeah. I think that in so many ways, movement and exercise can do a lot of great things for our body image, but I injured my neck last year and I was out of commission for movement for longer than I had ever really chosen to be. And it was probably like one of the worst body image experiences of my life. It had nothing to do with like how I looked. It was just like, I felt like I could not use my body in the way that I was used to using it. And it really hasn't like been the same since. Like, so that's kind of been Something that I feel like we don't think about a lot and especially when we're talking about working with all different ability levels is like it's not always like body image is not always about like what we look like and it doesn't always have to be about like attaining like this superficial body or, you know, manipulating the way our body looks. But I know that a lot of the like Fitspo conversation has like moved towards building strength and becoming stronger and like being better every single day. And it's like, that's just not realistic for most people. And why should those people feel bad if they can't do that?
0: Right. Yeah. And it it neglects the whole sort of beautiful mystery of our bodies where they're changing every day. They're always going to be different and they're changing over time. And like you have an injury and suddenly things are harder or we get older and we can't move in the same way that we used to. And so we have a new reality of how our body can move or, you know, a million other things about the way our bodies change and transform from day to day and over time. And so this idea that you should be getting stronger every day, is just like such bullshit. Like it doesn't, it's not real. It doesn't work. Yes. Amen. Ugh. It's terrible. Speaking of things that are such bullshit, um, I would love to hear your thoughts because you are also a dietitian, like on this the idea that personal trainers are giving Diets, right? And a lot of the, yeah. like the Fitbo community is all about whatever the diet du jour is. I mean, I think it's like clean eating or paleo or Whole 30 or keto or whatever. Right? There's always something new and seemingly different, but it's all a diet. It's all the same thing. It's all coming out of diet culture. Mm-hmm. So, what do you say to people who have had an experience where a trainer has given them a diet, or to trainers who are who think they need to be giving people diets? You know, like how do we get diet culture and dieting out of the movement space?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, <laughs> I've been creating a lot of resources for trainers on this because I like I'll hear stuff. I don't because I don't work in a gym anymore. I don't work alongside a lot of other trainers. So I have to kind of like troll <laughs> like other <laughs> personal training communities to like get in and what people <laughs> are talking about. I've created a like really nice safe space for myself. But Yeah, like when I hear about Whole30, I I just did a podcast episode on that because I was so angry about it. And then is like a big one. You can definitely bleep that out if you want. No one to Google that. Yeah. So for me, one of the things that I'm doing now is I'm offering trainings for trainers, personal trainers to feel like they can give nutrition information confidently. I've gotten some really positive feedback from dietitians and some dietitians who are like, well, what if they take our jobs and what if they (laughs) like give away all of our nutrition secrets? I'm like, it's, there's no secrets. It's more about giving them an alternative and something that they can actually talk to their clients with about that's actually evidence-based and actually can support their health. And it's very simple. It's just making sure that your clients are eating enough (laughs) and making sure that they're eating consistent meals throughout the day, making sure that they're fueling after their session with you and making sure that they're eating something before they come to their session with you. And it doesn't have to be... Rocket science. I mean, I think, obviously, on the surface level, I don't think that most trainers, maybe not all trainers, I'm sure there are plenty who have a background in nutrition. Technically, according to their training certification, aren't allowed to give diet advice. But any of that advice along the lines of like what we were just talking about of like the kind of diet promotions. Like I wouldn't recommend anyone be giving that advice. So it's, yeah, it's not like, Oh, this is just a trainer thing. Like they shouldn't be talking about this. I'm like, I don't think any of us should be talking about that.
0: No, for sure.
1: There's ways that we could talk to our clients about nutrition that can support them and, can help them feel good that doesn't involve restricting and it doesn't involve fasting and it doesn't involve elimination diets or 30-day challenges or whatever. It's just normal eating patterns.
0: Right. Yeah, I know. And I think that's really helpful to be giving personal trainers that option too, because I think a lot of personal trainers maybe feel like they should be saying something about food, that they should be giving their clients a diet or something like that. And also curious to know your thoughts about like sports nutrition and the idea that there is such a I think sports nutrition has very specific guidelines sometimes about how much to eat of X, Y, and Z macronutrients to recover from your workout or before your workout or to fuel a long workout or whatever, right? And when it gets that granular, it just feels like to me, that's easily slipping into diet mentality. And I think even a lot of why the science is so granular about it in the first place, maybe is born out of diet mentality and diet culture, you know, and how diet culture influences our research. Mm. So, you know, how as an intuitive eating dietitian, would you recommend people go about sports nutrition? Mm,
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think some of that information can be helpful depending on the circumstances, which I know is like the most annoying (laughs) answer to this question. But I mean, it so depends on on what you're doing and what your the issue is. I was actually talking to another trainer about this today because she was asking a similar question. Like, well, when my clients ask me, like, what should I eat before a workout? What can I tell them? And I'm like, well, let's start by asking, what's the problem? Like, what are you not getting out of your training? And this could be for athletes too, that you feel the need to change what you're eating before. Your workout or before your training session? Is it that you're having digestive issues? Because that might mean experimenting with a lower fiber carbohydrate instead of having like a bowl of oatmeal. Is it that you're feeling dizzy and you don't have enough energy? Well, maybe you just need to eat more food. <laughs> like, and it doesn't have to be like this super calculated, like this is how many calories or this is how much protein and how much carbs, but it could just be like a little bit of trial and error. Because I think some of the science is useful And we think about how like high fiber foods tend to like stay in our digestive system longer. So if we're like going for a really long run after we eat like something really high fiber, that might not feel so great. (laughs) But it doesn't mean that we have to stop eating that altogether. We have to go do a cleanse or whatever. We can just change something up and see if it works. And that's a lot of sports nutrition is just like trial and error, too.
0: Right. That's true. Yeah. And and I think it's very important public service announcement to say, like, just because your digestive system is giving you trouble doesn't mean you need to do a cleanse or eliminate right. some sort of food. Like, I think that goes for everyone too, not just athletes, but like, there's always this emphasis and this quick jump to oh, what do you need to eliminate? What are you intolerant to? What do you you know, right. should you do a cleanse to like, give your system a break? And like, all of that stuff is bullshit. You don't need to do any of that. It's, again, yeah, like this trial and error of like, oh, when I run, soon after eating a high fiber meal, I don't feel so great. But when I eat white toast instead before my workout or whatever, it doesn't affect me. Or if I wait a little bit longer and let myself digest a little bit longer before I go out, it doesn't have the same effect. So yeah, giving yourself the option of trial and error that has nothing to do with cutting out foods or eliminating things or cleansing, but actually looking at your relationship with food and how you're fueling yourself, I think can be so much more effective.
1: Totally. Yeah. And I think it just supports that all foods fit mentality as well, because if something like that comes up and you're saying, how about you try a sandwich on white bread, right? Before you run and your client's like really resistant to that. That's a little bit of a red flag and something that you can dig a little bit deeper into instead of just saying, okay, well scratch that. Let's try something else. And let's try you know, like cutting this out or cutting that out, which is where everyone's mind always goes to now, instead of saying like, maybe we just need to find an alternative that's equal but different.
0: <laughs> right. I know in this day and age, the way that diet culture is manifesting itself, because it's such a shapeshifter. I feel mm-hmm. like in this decade or part of our decade right now, it's about elimination and what's causing you problems and inflammation and cleanses and blah, blah, blah. But like a decade ago, the dietary demon was different. And a decade before that, the dietary demon was different. And it all—it just it's this constant churn of diet culture, finding different things to demonize. And none of it actually makes any sense. Like none of it's actually the real thing. Yeah, I know. I know. (laughs) Uh, And I think this is going to be running probably in early 2018. So I feel like this is good to to talk about when people, you know, at a time in the new year when people are probably doing all kinds of nonsense or being encouraged to do all kinds of nonsense to detox and reset and blah, blah, blah. Like, actually, you don't need that.
1: Yeah, I know. It's very simple. And I think too, I mean, something that, you know, when you're talking about calculations and how it can be very, how sports nutrition can be like that, I think that something that I've been working on with some of my clients who are kind of more in like the later stages of recovery and pretty solid in that is just using some of those numbers to just Show them like how skewed their idea, like how much they actually need is, especially people who have like come to me when they're like using a food journaling app quite obsessively, where I'm like, that's wildly underestimating how much food you actually need. And sometimes hearing that from someone with the the RD credentials where I'm not like really advocating to count calories, but to say like you probably need two to three times that amount in a day can be helpful to just give someone like a clearer idea of what they can actually aim for versus feeling like they always have to shoot under like a very low amount of calories or carbs or you know, fat or
0: whatever. Right. And then feeling like they're out of control when they can't stick to it or that right. they're like having all kinds of physical symptoms if they do stick to it. And they're, you know, it's like they're low energy and their hair is falling out and they can't perform the way they want to in their athletic pursuits or whatever. And it's like, okay, well, let's take a hard look at this because you're actually not getting enough energy and your body is eating itself. And that's why that's happening. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. I think these trackers that people are using these days are so problematic and they're just leading people so far astray. And yeah, if I could go into everybody's phone and just delete them or create some kind of like bot that mass deletes them, like a virus. makes them disappear, I would definitely do that. Yeah. So, Got to talk to Mr. Robot about that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's not a lot of my first sessions with clients. I'm like, you're going to throw away the scale, mm-hmm. delete my fitness pal, like take off your Fitbit. It's like <laughs> uh, yeah, a lot of like what they had probably adopted from someone else, (laughs) some other health professional in the past, unfortunately.
0: I know. It's true. Yeah. Like so many health professionals advocate those things and then it's our job to undo the dependence on them, the attachment to them, but... Yeah, I think, you know, that's a good sort of New Year's resolution or something if people are still in that mindset of like, let's see about giving up some diet culture paraphernalia. What of those things can you let go of, you know, and is Mm -hmm. that something you can experiment with in the new year instead of doubling down on them, which probably hasn't worked up until this point, right? Yeah, that's a good goal. Yeah. Life goals. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about your work and where people can find you and also this training that you're now doing for personal trainers.
1: Yeah. So my website is just my name. It's jessiehaggerty.com. And... I also have a podcast called The Body Love Project. And yeah, I just wrapped up the first round of this training I'm doing for four personal trainers and it's called Nutrition and Body Image Coaching Skills. And yeah, it's again, just how to talk to your clients about nutrition in like a really sound and confident way that doesn't involve dieting and it doesn't involve fasting or anything like that. And then also how to be able to train your clients. I mean, it's not It's not about... There's not a lot of training techniques thrown in there, but it's more about how you can kind of be as a trainer to help your clients feel better in their own bodies. So a lot of it is like what we talked about, talking about how to set your space up, for them, you know, eliminating the external feedback and eliminating the mirrors and really being able to create an environment to support your clients in the healing process so they can develop a better relationship with their body. And then you can stop selling weight loss. And it's like a win-win-win for everyone.
0: Oh, I love it. That's so important and so needed. So I'm very excited to be sharing that with the world. Thanks. And we'll put links to that in the show notes too, so people can find it and learn more and sign up. That's awesome. Thanks, Christy. Thanks so much, Jesse. It's great talking with you. Yeah, you too. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to Jesse Haggerty for joining us on this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you've gotten something out of this podcast, please help us reach more people who need to hear the anti-diet message by getting your friends and family to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. Doing it on one of the Apple platforms helps bring us up in the podcast rankings so that more people discover us. And that's really important at this time of year when diet culture is at its peak. So help us fight back by getting more subscribers. You can also leave us a nice rating and review your podcast provider of choice, which is another way to help new listeners discover us and is always very much appreciated. If you're looking for some practical tips to get started on your own anti-diet journey, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Go to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, head over to christyharrison.com slash 140. That's christyharrison.com slash 140. This episode was brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to make peace with food, become an intuitive eater, and leave diet culture behind once and for all, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Food Psych is edited and engineered by Podcast Fast Track. Our community manager and content development associate is Ashley Saruia, and our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Or scared, no work in the kitchen Who put you there in that